Welcome to the Work Minus Podcast. We talk about what we need to drop from the way we think about work and what we need to replace it with to be prepared for the future. Go to workminus.com to see a transcript of this episode, more podcasts, articles, and a newsletter that connects you to the best ideas about work. All right, enjoy the show. Well, welcome back to Work Minus, where we talk about how to build a company that can thrive in the future of work. Today, our guest is Arlene Rowan. She's an advisor and practice lead for inclusion and diversity for a human advantage, and this is Work Minus Platitudes. Hi, Arlene. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing well today. Thank you, Neil. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, why don't you start off just introducing yourself and what kind of work you do? Okay. So Arlene, and I work in three distinct areas. Um, And I name these areas based on what's recognizable to people. First is global diversity. um, And that pretty much corresponds to how people identify uh, themselves culturally, individually uh, around the world. I work with a lot of uh, uh, multinational or global organizations in both the for-profit and non-profit sector. Uh, The next area is inclusion, and that really focuses on a set of behaviors uh, because inclusion is the behavior or a set of behaviors that makes diversity work. And then the last area that I work in is uh, cultural competency. And that's an even more refined set of skills that um, help people, leaders in particular, focus on, you know, how do I really recognize and respond to um, significant human differences? That's what I do. So you spend a lot of time talking and recognizing that people are different. And we can't assume that everyone's just like us, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I'm glad you said recognizing as a... One of the one of the platitudes I really dislike is awareness, uh, you know, diversity awareness. There was a lot of uh, I think uh, emphasis, you know, some years back on increasing awareness, and you still see that in course titles. And I just avoid it uh, because awareness is is like being on a moving sidewalk, right? Uh, you're in the airport. Uh, you you just know your gate is B47. Uh, you get close to B47 and you see there's a gate change. Well, you just, you're aware. You just became aware. You're still on the moving sidewalk. You're in the wrong, you're in the wrong, you're even in the wrong concourse. Um, awareness does not imply that you have any responsibility mm. to get off the moving sidewalk, turn around and go in an opposite direction. So um, I prefer words like acknowledging that people are acknowledging, you know, just, just, you know, just a deeper sense of, hey, I'm in the wrong place with regards to my understanding of who you are and how you experience the world. Yeah, I think when we talk about maybe awareness that puts, uh, I'll just speak for myself as a, as a white male, as my position is still the default, and I'll start to become aware of everyone else as the, all the ancillary people out there, and maybe I'll learn a little bit here and there, but it doesn't necessarily change my center of the universe being who I am, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, thank you for recognizing that that sometimes the default or many times the default, at least in Western culture, is is whiteness, is maleness. But I mean, there are many other, you know, defaults yeah. around the world. I mean, certainly when I work in um, in countries where whiteness and uh, what at least whiteness isn't the, uh, the, the critical dimension of uh, of sameness. You know, there's there's a lack of, of of awareness that others sort of navigate the world differently, and um, you know, 
one of the one of the tools that we use, uh, we meeting interculturalists and, and people who do work in this space, is something that we call the cultural iceberg. You know, we're each born onto our own little iceberg. You know, and um, and oftentimes we we navigate from the top of it. We navigate based on what's observable. We call that observable culture, and what we can observe most um, frequently um, is what we have in common with other people. Um, and so those traits that we have in common, whether it's our skin color or ethnicity or religion or whatever, you know, those become those, the, the markers that we use. And we say, hey, you know, your ice is a lot like my ice. Um, but we all know icebergs are tremendously complex. And it's really the stuff beneath the surface of the water that sinks ships. And it sinks relationships as well. And so when we learn to 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 acknowledge that there's so much more subjective uh, culture uh, or cultural awareness that we need to develop, you know, those things beneath the surface of the water. Uh, if we accept that, then we can become a lot better at navigating and making certain, you know, that my iceberg doesn't crash into your iceberg, even underneath the water. All right, we have already gotten in deep. We're just a couple minutes in. This is great. So uh, we're, we're talking about work minus platitudes. Platitudes are very common in the corporate culture. They have been for a long time, but we're trying to move beyond. I feel like every time we try to, to gain more, I'll, I'll use your negative word awareness, we kind of become more aware of what we're not aware of. And it, it keeps getting deeper. And we're learning that it's not just about saying the right things. It's about actually putting things in practice. So when you take this term work minus platitudes, what does that mean to you? What does a workplace without platitudes look like? Well, I mean, there are a couple First is work minus awareness. Yeah. <laughs> Can we just move to a place of acknowledgement, right? Um, uh, work minus diversity, and we can talk more about that a little bit later. But, you know, more recently, and especially with what we're experiencing now in the world with uh, COVID-19, um, uh, what I see uh, coming across in, in a lot of the the, uh, the emails, oh, 10 things leaders need to do to keep people engaged. There's a lot of talk now, again, about values, mm. um, you know, organization values and, um, and uh, let's, let's live the values. And, and, um, and not that I don't think people or organizations should, have, should not have values. I, I, I really do believe that they should, but, um, but, re, but the use of the term values oftentimes is, is very superficial. And, and it's used as a, again, as a platitude, as, as something to placate, um, uh, to gloss over. And, um, and so that's, that's one that where I'm really spending some time with many of the people that I work with. Um, do we really have the same values? Mm. And that's a critical question. Yeah. Well, give us some examples of what you're dealing with in the real world. So, so in the real world, um, do we really have the same values? Um, I always, I always pose this question, uh, whether in groups or with an individual. So let's say we have two children and, and a lot of, uh, I know a lot of people now are working from home with children, right. uh, around various ages. And, uh, let's say two children about the same age, say like five, four or five years old. And, and one child, you say to child A, you know, clean your room, Right. And child says, no, I don't want to. Because, you know, children can be, um, have their own minds. They're practicing independence and whatnot. Says, no, uh, I don't want to. But then the child goes into their room and cleans the room as best as a five-year-old can or a four-year-old can. 
Child B, clean your room, agrees, right? Shows signs of agreement, says, yes, mom, yes, dad, or yes, whoever, yes, auntie, goes into the room and just like tears it apart, right? Doesn't make it any, any cleaner, makes it worse. And I've, I asked this question based on how you were raised, all right, based on your value system, which child, right, is closer to getting it right? Right. Which child would 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 be, you know, uh, maybe further away from getting it right or which child would be, you know, deemed punishable, you know, uh, whatever punishment means, a timeout or whatever. Would it be child A or child B? And and oftentimes, you know, if, if I'm in a group, an argument ensues. <laughs> People say, no, child A, you know, you know. They, they disagreed with, with, with an adult, you know, or they say, no, child B, they lied. I was like, okay, let's take child A. Child A, simply, you know, speaking their own mind, right? The value of independence, you know, uh, you know, um, you know, honesty is the best policy, right? Even if, even if, you know, honesty means that you're going against the grain, those are like really core American values, right? Right. Or Western values, or some people say, no, child B. I'll tell you, I was raised as a child B where you said, yes, you did not disagree with someone in authority at all, ever, right? Even if you knew they were wrong, right? Uh, and my mother had a saying, a hard head makes a soft behind, mm. right? <laughs> Go ahead, disagree. And so here we have the, the, the values, the core values of honesty, right? Being challenged with the behaviors. So it's not just saying, oh, we value honesty. It's saying, how does that honesty show up? How do we expect it to show up in the workplace? Does it mean that you honestly speak your mind, even if you disagree with the corporate policy, right? Or does it mean, let's agree as an organization, right? That this is how this is how the policy is, and then we find other ways to maybe bring in our disagreement later on. And so we really have to think about how we are building these or building organizations around behaviors. What are the behaviors that matter most, and how do we honor these behaviors? I mean, we're seeing some of these challenges. I I, I work with some some organizations where they're seeing these challenges, you know, cross generational challenges. Like, oh, wow, this generation, that generation. It's like, well, no, it's just behavioral differences in how we treat some of the same words like honesty or integrity, um, you know, diversity. We value diversity. What does that mean? You know? Hey, everyone. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, the best way you can support us is to leave a review in your favorite podcast app. Or better yet, start a conversation with a friend about how you think we can make work better. Thanks. Yeah, well, let's take that because, I mean, every company you're going to talk to, every CEO is going to say, we value diversity. They're like that. But we know in practice it's not true. So what's the difference? And and how do you get at that? And what do you hope companies take away from this? So we value diversity. That's like saying, oh, we we value human beings. Um, Of course you do. Um, What you value is you you value um, what people bring into the workplace. Right. I'm sure I'm sure many people have heard, you know, the statement, oh, you know, bring your whole self to work. Uh, Oh, uh, I want to be in an organization where I can be authentic. Um, Brene Brown um, made a statement uh, several years ago 
that uh, in a TED talk that talks about the difference between fitting fitting in and belonging. You know, um, and that's a that's in a way talking about this valuing diversity. You know, so there are organizations that say we value diversity, but while you're here, that diversity has to be shaped in a certain way. I mean, Neil, earlier you said, you know, the default white male or the default sort of, you know, leadership style. Is there a certain way that we expect people to engage in conversation? Is there a certain way that we expect people to build their careers? Is there a certain way? Well, that's a, that's a fit in kind of culture. I'm valuing diversity, Arlene. You know, you can be just as successful here. And for those of you who can't see me or who haven't seen me, I'm a black female. You know, as long as I show up like Neil, right, look and sound like Neil, then, hey, we're valuing diversity because I can see it or I can hear it. Uh, but we're not really valuing the differences in input. You know, the problem with valuing diversity in that environment is that I can have a lot of what I said earlier, objective diversity, things that look different on the surface, but subjectively, everybody's behaving exactly the same. And studies show that that just leads to groupthink. Then we just, we're, we're all thinking alike. So uh, many times these organizations say, oh, I value diversity, um, and but the true diversity I want is diversity of thought because I want innovation. Well, maybe you need to stop valuing diversity. Yeah. Maybe what you really need to do is enforce inclusion, you know, is make certain that we are being, that you're being inclusive, that you're building the kind of culture where people who are maybe more at the peripheral of your vision are just as important and have just as loud a voice as the people who are in the center of your vision. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when a lot of people say we value diversity, they say we value the demographic check marks we can put on a report and say that we have these people. But when you're actually in those conversations, in those meetings, in those discussions that happen, you, you'll notice that, like you said, as long as you act like me, as long as your behaviors act like my behaviors, then you're fine. I don't care what you look like. But that's really the, the key is, is it's in the behavior. So what does it look like for um, some key tells you can see when a company actually is inclusive, when they are equitable or anti-oppressive or whatever term you prefer in that situation? Like, how can those behaviors actually change to say, yeah, we do value even different behaviors? So when when, when people are valuing, or I like I, I prefer the term, you know, adapting to differences. When people are adaptive, so they're accepting and then they're adapting to these differences. Um, the first thing you recognize is that um, is that 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 word PC or that that definition PC changes. So it goes from being you know politically correct, which is what we all know what that is, to being polite and candid. So people can speak candidly, right, about the work and about what what excites them about the work, about the work that is not working. Um, so people can speak candidly, still politely, but polite and candidly. They can speak candidly, right? They can respectfully challenge. And this means respectfully challenge not just their peers, Peer-to-peer -peer challenge, I think, is always expected in an organization uh, because in some ways that, that's what keeps us competitive is that when I have a peer and I can challenge, that, but when I can respectfully challenge cross-level, right, up and down the organization, and when I can respectfully challenge, you know, people in another silo 
hey, wait a minute, production, I think you got this wrong a little bit, or maybe we need to, you know, testing, you know, I need you to challenge how we develop the code, you know, so when people can respectfully challenge, you know, others in the organization, especially those who are, who are across an organizational line, those are organizations that I think are, are reaping the benefits of, of, of true inclusive behavior, right? And then um, lastly, and we can talk about this in some more depth in a minute, you know, is, is trust. Uh, you know, a lot of organizations talk about trust, and that's the other thing I see a lot of now in these checklists, you know, check next, checklist for leaders, uh, you know, getting through COVID-19, build trust. But what does that mean? <laughs> you know, what is, you know, build trust? Uh, you know, I have never been able to build trust with somebody just by saying, trust me, right? right? You know? Neil, I mean, trust me. Yeah, it just, it doesn't work that way. You know, trust is a process um, and we all build trust differently. We all have our own trust development process. And so part of our adaptation and, and part of what we need to build into our organizations is, is an understanding that, um, that people build trust differently um, people need time to build trust. And so we need as leaders to create opportunities for people to build trust. Now, I don't mean those kinds of crazy trust fall exercises that became popular on, you know, a couple of decades ago. I mean, that, that, those are nuts, right? <laughs> or the kind of trust exercise where people are forced to overexpose themselves emotionally, right? Um, crazy. Um, you know, where people are, are asked to recall a childhood experience that changed the direction of their lives. And then all of a sudden you're sitting next to a coworker and you never knew that they're, you know, that one parent, you know, you know, died tra in a tragic accident. And, and then all of a sudden, then the next day you're supposed to go back to normal work. Right. And you know, this this horrible, you know, situation occurred with your coworker and you don't know what to do about it. So, so, so that's not the kind of trust we're talking about. And, you know, Neil earlier, um, you know, when you and I had a conversation, I brought up, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm, yeah. And this is where this comes in. You know, if we're going to really build trust, let's just go back to the basics, right? People have to have their basic needs met, right? So organizations, so how do we build trust in an organization? How do we build meaningful um, relationships in an organization? Let's go to the base of that triangle. And the base, it says people have to have their basic needs met. When people are working in an organization and they can't, um, you know, buy food or the resources that they need for their family, when they don't feel they are paid a fair wage, and a fair wage can vary you know, depending on the level and depending on the experience, but when they feel they're not paid fairly, you know, that's one of the markers, you know, hey, you're not going to build trust. You're just not going to move up that triangle. The next level is, is really about, um, is really about, you know, um, you know, do I feel safe, right? And uh, I read a statement yesterday that I really that I'll bring in here. You know, it's, it's actually it's about psychological safety. You know, and and really psychological safety. If you either you feel safe or you don't, just forget the psychological part of it. Right, right. You, you care if you don't feel safe, you don't feel safe. 
And when people are forced to overexpose themselves, you know, emotionally or personally, you don't feel safe, right? I, as a black female, you know, starting my career, you know, that safety piece was oftentimes ping. When I was put on the spot, oh, Arlene, as a black woman, how do you feel about, it's like, well, gee, I never thought about studying math <laughs> as a black woman. I just liked math, right? Um, yeah. And so, so, so when you're put on the spot, just like Neil, if I said, Neil, tell me as a white man, how do you feel about, you know, having children? Like, well, gee, um, yeah. I just love my kids. Um, <laughs> you know, I love my spouse. It was like, I've never thought about it like that. So, 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 so those are the, those are those instances that really ping on that, that safety. I don't, I don't feel safe to be authentic because you're questioning a part of me that really shouldn't be questioned. Yeah. Right. And so if we can get those two pieces correct, right. If leaders work on those two, that's the leadership responsibility. Make certain that people are feel that they are treated fairly from an economic standpoint so that their basic needs can be met so that when they're sitting there working, they're not worried about paying the rent or the mortgage or, or paying for, you know, so that they're, they're okay. And then nextly, let's make certain we don't have these situations where people feel like their authenticity is questioned and that, and that they're not safe sort of explaining, well, gee, when you say that, that really makes me feel uncomfortable. You know, then we can have reach that level of Maslow's that's in the beginning, in the middle, where it says love and be belonging. Now, I'm not advocating that we fall in love with people that we work with. Okay, if you do, that's great. It's always great when you when you meet someone at that level. I don't care whether it's at work or just walking down the street. That's great. But where we feel like the people around us will treat us, you know, almost like almost like family, but not quite. Okay, almost like family, but not quite. Uh, where we feel like, regardless of how we show up on any given day, they're going to recognize the value of the work that we really do contribute, um, and that they're willing to partner with us. And so that's what we want. That's what we, that's where trust begins. Because after that, Maslow says, "Well, then I'm really willing to like throw myself all in and give it all and give it my best." Yeah, definitely. Like, I think that term belonging is something we should shoot for to make sure people feel like not only is this a place where you can be safe and you're not going to be attacked uh, for who you are, but you actually belong here. Like this is where you should be. Uh, that's a powerful thing. Well, let's end with this question. I want to talk to directly to people who are leading CEOs of companies that are out there. They're trying to, to build this. They're trying to move away. What are some introspective questions they should be asking to let them know, oh, am I just talking about a platitude here or do I really believe this? So what, what are some of those key behaviors that you see in leaders that differentiates them? Uh, one of the first behaviors is, uh, is this recognition that they themselves bring a unique um, and, and challenging perspective into the organization. Um, and, and that they themselves can demonstrate the behavior of, 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 of disclosure. And I don't mean over, over, over disclosing, but that they, that they show who they are and why and what motivates them. You know, being able to talk about their own individual identity and what influences the decisions that they make. And when leaders are, 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 
are able and willing to talk about that, that's where others can come in and, and respectfully challenge. Hey, I didn't have that experience. All right. Yeah, I may have the same degree, but I didn't have that experience. I'd like to challenge, you know, how you make decisions based on that experience because my experience was different. You know, and so leaders have to be, you know, have to be a little bit more, a little bit more open um, about about who they are and um, and their values, their perceptions, and what motivates their behaviors. And so leaders might need to learn a, a new vocabulary, um, and that's and they have to be willing to to demonstrate that willingness to learn a new vo- vocabulary. And the second, yeah, and the second point that I would say is that. All too often as leaders, um, we look in front of us, right? We look in front of us. And, and even if we widen our field of vision, we tend to see people sort of, you know, in a bell curve, you know, the majority of people. And, and that's not sufficient if we're going to be inclusive. If we're going to be inclusive, we have to look in our peripheral vision, Right. And that may mean turning our head from side to side. And we have to value the periphery or the people in our peripheral vision and what they bring as much. We have to value those folks and their voices as much as the people in front of us. And that's that's really, really hard to do um, because most leaders are trained, you know, on that bell curve. And so and it's so ingrained. We have a bias towards it. Uh, we say, oh, that's a standard, you know, those folks are a standard deviation away. Well, well, yeah. And maybe it's in those margins where we find true brilliance or we find, we find those really critical questions that we failed to ask ourselves or that the team failed to take seriously that can really, you know, drive, drive us in a new direction. So I would say that would be the second one. Learn to look in the periphery and really question and value and bring in those voices that aren't right in front of us. Arlene, this is great. I feel like as we're looking at building a company that can thrive in the future, these platitudes will not get us there. We need to go deeper. We need to to understand what this means beyond this. And I feel like we're we're at a stage in history and time in in corporate development where we're ready to hear this message. So thank you for preaching this for us or telling it to us helping us understand these things and uh, for all, all of what you do. Uh, where can people go to stay in touch with what you do in your work? So the, the best place to go would be to LinkedIn. Um, I tend to be more active on LinkedIn uh, and it's under my name, Arlene Roan, R-O-A-N-E. Uh, I, I also uh, post on uh, Human Advantage. Uh, Human Advantage is, uh, we have a LinkedIn page uh, and I also post on Red House, which is an organization that I started uh, some years ago. Um, and uh, for email, it's my name, Arlene.Roan at ahumanadvantage.com. Uh, that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. Uh, so there you have it. <laughs> well, thank you very much for being on the show. We look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. All right. Thanks so much, Neil. Have a great day.